Good morning, everyone. Uh, so our reading today is Luke chapter 24, uh, verses 36 to 53. Uh, you can find that on page 1,609 uh, of the Bibles that are on your chairs, uh, or it will also be on the screen right there. Uh, so that's Luke chapter 24, verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking that they, had see, they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they still not believe it because of and while they still not, did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Thanks very much, Lockie, and good morning, everyone. Uh, let me add my welcome to Kelly's from before. My name is uh, Cam Maxwell. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Trinity Church Tonsley. And I'll start by saying thank you so much uh, to you all for joining us on a really special day like Easter. Uh, it's just so wonderful to have uh, you with us. Um, it might just be me, uh, but it does seem that the world has become, uh, let's just say, a little bit more stressful over the last couple of years. Um, I know it's naive to think that, you know, the good old days were full of rainbows and lollipops. Uh, and like I say, it might just be me in a week that our church is running two services on a short week. Uh, and I found out, you know, late uh, yesterday evening that half our music team might be in isolation. Turned out to be fine, but it was a bit of a stressful uh, few hours there. Uh, it might be me, but the world does seem to be more dangerous, uh, not less dangerous than it used to be. Which is strange for someone of my generation. I was born uh, in the 80s, mid-80s. Um, I don't remember the Cold War, but it was on. Uh, and, you know, as it finished in the early 90s, it seems that my whole lifetime has been about the world getting progressively safer uh, and easier and easier and more prosperous. Um, but now, all of a sudden, uh, within the space of a few weeks, the thought of World War III uh, isn't quite as ridiculous as it might have been even two years ago. Uh, it's still unlikely, I think, but, you know, still... From the economy, to the environments, uh, to health, uh, to just getting through a school week as a family, uh, things have been getting harder and I think uh, more chaotic for most of us. Uh, there's just so much to navigate now, isn't there? Uh, sure enough, it seems like uh, across the board, uh, the surveys that tell us uh, rates of things like anxiety, uh, depression, uh, they're all up, those rates. 
I don't plan today to offer us a sort of simple solutions uh, to very complex problems of our world or uh, even the complex issues that each of us are facing in day-to-day life. Uh, on Easter Sunday, I just want to ask us one question. Can we find peace? Can we find peace in a world of chaos and stress and uncertainty? Um, and I ask that question because I'm not sure that escaping is the way to go. You know, finding a nice cave somewhere in the Adelaide Hills to become a hermit, I'm not sure that's a, the best solution. Though, if uh, you've joined us this morning from your hermitage or ho- a hovel somewhere, it's uh, great to have you with us for Easter Sunday. To be fair to hermits, though, um, I, think, I think I'm in pretty good company when I say that I'm pretty good at ignoring uh, the world or just distracting myself enough uh, so I don't have to think about the chaos for a little while. A lot of the time, I can actually just get on with life without being overwhelmed by the realities all around me. But that's not finding peace, is it? Uh, That's living in uh, denial or being distracted from reality. It's not really peace. It might be fine for a while to live that way, but the storm will hit. And when it does, can we find peace even when the storm descends on us? Well, the good news of Easter is that, yes, uh, we can find peace. Uh, Christians for about 2,000 years now have found that in their lives, uh, and they found that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the key to finding peace to get through our world. Don't, don't mishear me, I'm not saying it's the key to finding an easy life or a life free of chaos, but a peace that as we follow Jesus cuts through the chaos, a peace that can settle us and can give us confidence to live no matter what may come our way. Now that, I think, is about a bigger claim as you can make. Uh, The resurrection of Jesus providing a peace that sounds, I think, too good to be true at face value. From the passage we just uh, had read to us by Lockie uh, in Luke 24, this claim seems too good to be true for the disciples as well. Even the first disciples are there. They couldn't believe, I don't think, that their friend Jesus was going to stop being dead all of a sudden. If you're with us today as someone uh, looking into these things uh, at a church, perhaps for the first time or the first time in a long time, uh, again, welcome. It's so great you can be with us. Uh, And especially today, because uh, this account of Jesus appearing to his disciples uh, and other accounts like it in the Bible, these are really, really central words, uh, central statements about the whole Bible and, of course, the whole Christian faith. If Jesus really rose from the dead, and this account we have in Luke is a good record of history, then we can build a whole worldview around this, which includes hope for eternity. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, we might as well pack up and go home now. Uh, Perhaps try and find a nice cave to live in uh, while we can. The thing that I love about this account uh, of the resurrection we see here in Luke is we get to see what it was like for those very first eyewitnesses to have Jesus suddenly arrive almost from nowhere. Uh, It's funny, I think. It's almost funny as you read this story because it just doesn't read as as if something you'd make up. Uh, Let's have a look. Uh, It'd be great to keep uh, the Bible open in front of you if you have it there. I think we're on page 1609. We'll just uh, look at a few key parts of that passage today. Uh, Just let me uh, set the scene first, perhaps. Uh, Set the scene a bit for us. Uh, Throw your your mind back a few years before this point, the disciples, they'd thrown their lives into following Jesus around. Uh, They left behind their families, some of them. Uh, They certainly left behind their small businesses, you know, fishermen. Uh, They left behind their homes in some cases. And they left it all behind to go and follow Jesus, uh, to walk around with him, listen to him for a few years. 
And it seems that they thought he was the one that was going to seize the crown and become the king of their country and to rule. In fact, only a week or so before this event we've read about, a week or so ago, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem and been welcomed as their king. So you must think the disciples were, right, we're on on to a winner here. We're, We're on our way. The king is about to be crowned. But in a very short space of time, less than a week or thereabouts, an absolute disaster if you're Jesus' disciple. And as we get to this account here, you think back the last few days and the trauma and the drama, it's, it's been bizarre and it's, I'm sure, scarring in all kinds of ways. We're reading about, uh, in Luke 24, Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, but just a few hours before, Thursday night, they were there when Jesus was arrested and led off by violent men. Uh, and at the moment, they all fled, the disciples, probably just to look after themselves, make sure they weren't going to get caught up in this. The leader of the disciples, Peter, he publicly denied even knowing Jesus. Not a good look. That was Thursday night. Friday, well, the one they thought was going to be the king, the one they'd thrown their life into uh, to following, he was beaten, he was flogged, he had a crown, but it was made of thorns, jammed onto his head, and he was killed on a cross, publicly, uh, brutally, and in complete humiliation. In the shoes of the disciples, how, how devastating that would be. And actually, how humiliating for you if that was, if that was you, you'd been following this guy around. What a failure, what a devastation. Uh, you've backed a loser. He's a nice guy for sure, but, but what next for your life? I can only imagine a very sad and somber Saturday, a Sabbath rest for them. Uh, but then we have the weirdest Sunday of all times. Uh, Luke tells us a little bit early in the chapter that we've been reading. Uh, first, the women get up very, very early and they can't find his body. Uh, to make it even weirder, they hear from angels that he's risen from the dead. Now, imagine uh, that that was you in that room hearing the report that women had come back and told you about it. You think, what do you mean, risen? Like, risen to where? Where's he gone? Where is his body? See, just like us, ancient people knew dead people don't come back to life. They weren't expecting it at all. In fact, I imagine that uh, the ancient world knew even better than us that the dead don't rise. For us, death is very removed. We don't get to see it much, which is, I think, I'm thankful for myself. But dead bodies would have been a common occurrence in most lives back then. These are not naive people. They know dead people don't rise. Then last week uh, here on church, we heard about the uh, passage just before this one where a couple of disciples were walking away from Jerusalem when suddenly Jesus, who should have been dead, uh, just appeared and started chatting with them. They didn't recognize him at first, but you know, he sits down and does a Bible study with them and has a meal, or well, about to have a meal. Uh, he shows them actually from the Old Testament that the scriptures are all about him, and then he just disappears. Very strange, very unsettling, if that was you, I think. Those two disciples race back to Jerusalem. They, they want to let the other, others know that we've seen Jesus. He is alive. He's risen. And that's where we kind of picked up our reading today. They enter the room. They start reporting it and talking about it. And Luke doesn't give us this detail, but we find out elsewhere. The room they're in, the disciples at this point, it's a locked room. I suspect they're still fearful uh, that they might too be, uh, be arrested or something like that. What a bizarre room to be in. Uh, the emotions would be running high as these things were discussed. If you were in the room, if you were one of these disciples, and you hadn't yet seen Jesus risen yourself, what do you make of all this? Um, are you the one that's sort of daring to hope? Are you the cynical one, sceptical of these, uh, these people getting carried away with uh, ridiculous claims? 
Perhaps you're just more concerned about your own life at this point and uh, just thankful that the doors are locked. And what do you do when all of a sudden, in this locked room, Jesus himself is standing there? I think if that was me, I'd probably scream like a, a three-year-old girl. Uh, I'd be terrified. And it's funny, isn't it? Jesus anticipates that they might freak out a bit. He knows his friends and what they're like. And so his first words to them, do you see, his first words are, peace be with you. Uh, basically, hey, everyone, don't freak out, don't panic, but hi, it's me. Had zero effect, of course, because what do they do? They all completely panic and freak out. Verse 37, we're told, they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. These people are literally terrified, and I'm sure they were screaming. And fair enough, right? This is a very, very unusual moment. Jesus then, with great tenderness, helps them settle down. He demonstrates, no, it's really me. Uh, it's, I'm not a ghost. Look, I've got you know, the marks from the nails, my hand and my feet. You can look, you can touch me. I'm, I'm physical, I'm real. And he sort of asks, you know, you got anything in the fridge there? I'm, I'm keen for a snack. And after all, uh, what more human thing is there than eating some leftovers with friends? It's a great moment, but what it's not is a peaceful moment, is it? Jesus rocks up saying, peace be with you, and anything but peace unfolds from here. Even once the screams die down and the heart rates drop a little bit back to normal, I still don't think everyone's exactly relaxed watching someone they thought who was very dead casually snacking on some barbecued fish. So Jesus' opening line here, peace be with you, it stands out to me. Because Jesus isn't exactly famous for being tone deaf, is he? Maybe, uh, maybe it's just a casual greeting as if to say, hi guys, uh, how's it going? But peace, uh, peace is an idea that Luke has been very interested in all throughout his book. Uh, Luke, the author, he promised right back at the start of the biography of Jesus, as he tells us the Christmas story, at the beginning, he tells us that angels proclaim that God would bring peace on earth. Peace on earth. And here we are at the end of Luke's account of Jesus' life, and Jesus himself announces, there's peace now. Peace be with you. Sure, in that moment, chaos uh, probably ensues, but even if they don't know it, it seems the disciples at this moment have access to peace like never before, because Jesus is risen. Now, how does that work? How does it work? How, like, why does the resurrection of Jesus bring peace? What's going on there? Well, the way the Bible explains our world and the chaos in our world, uh, the things that cause us stress or grief or suffering, the Bible explains that these things remind us that all is not well. Uh, all is not well between us, humans, and our Creator. Uh, all of God's creation, from, from the cosmic uh, to large scale, uh, things like our environment, uh, right down to the personal scale where relational chaos and pain uh, that we inflict on each other are very real, it's all there because things are not right between us and our Creator. See, God is a glorious, He's immortal, He's eternal, He's a majestic being. He's only ever loving and kind and just, and yet every single person who has ever lived, bar Jesus, uh, every single person has treated him with indifference at best, uh, and probably more commonly, defiance. Uh, we might accuse God of being mean or, or stingy, holding back from uh, giving us good things. And so there is no peace with our Creator. 
which means there is no true, lasting peace. See, that's the great problem of our world. As much as we worry rightly about uh, important issues like the economy, the environment, uh, our own daily problems that are rightly stressful, these are real problems and big problems, but these problems keep pointing us to, or should be pointing us to, and drawing our attention to the biggest problem, that things are not right between us and our Creator, the Creator and His creatures. And so the resurrection is the point where Jesus announces there is now peace. That relationship is fixed for the disciples. How has that happened? What is that peace like? They're important things, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But I want to take us on a bit of a side note, uh, just for a moment, and a very important one that comes up in the passage. Because I'm talking about things that I think sound too good to be true at face value, so don't we want to know, what does it take to believe in this and be convinced of it? I think that's the important question for anyone. Whether you've been following Jesus your whole life and would just like to know with more certainty that you're uh, on the right track. Uh, perhaps you're one of our youth and you haven't yet uh, made your parents' faith your own faith. Uh, that's the question, isn't it? What does it take to believe? Now, if you're someone here just exploring or looking into these claims about Jesus for yourself, like, what does it take to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Like with everything, uh, we might want to very carefully consider all the evidence uh, for the resurrection. I think there is plenty of compelling evidence. You can make a good case that the resurrection is a real historical event. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, in, my, in my sermon on Sunday, I, I took us through some of those key pieces of, of evidence to consider, and uh, you're able to look that up on our website if you like. Uh, but here, Luke gives us a few more things to consider as we think about the eyewitness account of the resurrection. First, perhaps I think it's clear that the disciples weren't wishing hard to see their dead friends, uh, wishing so hard that they kind of imagined it, some kind of uh, mass-induced hallucination because they so desperately wanted to see Jesus. It's the opposite, isn't it? This is not an imagination of seeing Jesus born out of great desire to see him. It's the opposite. They're not expecting to see him at all. Uh, what's more, we see in this account, Jesus has the marks of crucifixion. and The eyewitnesses here, they got to touch him. They got to watch him eat. Uh, he's not a ghost, and he's the same person that was crucified only, only a few hours ago, really. Or oh, actually a few days ago, sorry. This all builds a case uh, that many bits of evidence, you put them all together, I think are compelling that Jesus rose from the dead. I should say as well, if you'd like to look uh, more into that kind of claim, it's, a, it's the biggest one of all, perhaps. Uh, there are plenty of resources. Come and uh, chat to me afterwards. I can point you in the right direction if you'd like to do some more thinking or reading on that topic. But I also want to say what's really, really odd in this moment, uh, in, this, in this room that they're in, with all the evidence you could ever wish for, Jesus himself standing there talking to you, have a look at verse 40, 41. Even then, they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. Now, I think that is an extremely odd thing to tell us. Uh, if Luke was trying to make up a story about Jesus coming back from the dead, if he's inventing this story, I don't think you'd include that detail. Like, why would you say that someone was struggling to see Jesus uh, and believe? It makes me think of the many conversations I've had, and some of you, uh, many of you would have had similar conversations. Uh, you might be talking to someone about what you believe, and uh, you might ask, well, what, what would it take you to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? The answer I hear most commonly is, well, I suppose if I could see Jesus for myself, with my own eyes, if I could touch him, well, maybe then I'd believe he rose from the dead. We see here in Luke, it's just not that simple. Seeing is not simply believing. Just ask these poor, shocked disciples here. 
they're struggling to come to terms with what they can see. And I guess my question is, would we do any better? Uh, say you get home from church this afternoon and Jesus is just in your lounge room. <laughs> He's asking for something to eat and you know, picking through your fridge. Like, at that point, it's not simple, is it, believing that this is the resurrected Messiah? You'd be wondering first, I think it was me, have I gone crazy? See, no matter how great the evidence uh, historically for the resurrection is, and there is, let me say again, very compelling evidence uh, to make the case. My point is we could always find something if we wanted to uh, that could cause some reason to disbelieve. Seeing is not simply believing. And so what happens next, I think, is critical. Because, yes, it absolutely would help us, I think, to be in that room seeing for ourselves. I'm sure seeing Jesus would build our faith. But that sight is not ultimately what leads to their belief. The disciples needed something else to help them on their journey to belief, and so do we. So from verse 44, Jesus gives his disciples, and I think he gives us here as well, the key to belief. Jesus shows from the Scriptures, uh, the Old Testament, the sort of the first half, as it were, of the Bible, he shows us that they are all about him. Jesus seems to be saying that Scripture is the main proof, actually, of the resurrection. Scripture is the proof of resurrection. I realise if you're sceptical, that might sound a bit suspicious. Uh, and I think, yeah, it's worth investigating that claim. But I just want to say, think about this, that the Old Testament, some of it written hundreds of years, other parts perhaps thousands of years before Jesus, it was an ancient document even before in, in Jesus' day. Those scriptures are, are made up of uh, books of history and law and poetry and uh, sort of prophetic commentary. They all work together to paint, I guess, a word picture of God's salvation plan for our world. And as you read the Scriptures, uh, you see it's a plan that's centred around God's King, God's servant, uh, who will provide the one sacrifice for sin that will make the relationship between Creator and creature possible. So if I told you a dead guy just rocked up at his own wake, it's bizarre and it's kind of unbelievable in and, in and of itself as a random event. There's no reason for it. But if I told you God had been working out this plan for centuries and forecasting his plan, and people writing it down about the death and resurrection of his king, well, you could read that for yourself, couldn't you? You could pick up the Old Testament and, and read through it and see how it does point to Jesus. I find it amazing that Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, he fulfills what the Scriptures are all about. I think, yes, the Scriptures ultimately are the proof, and, the, and they explain the meaning of the resurrection. Now, I've been thinking about a good way to uh, illustrate what I'm sort of talking about here. And, you know, in a building that used to be a factory, I've been inspired by factories. Um, think about the Old Testament a bit like a cast or a mould. I'll play this little picture for you up on the screen here. Uh, I don't know how we can see that, but there's the, the metallic cast that a bottle gets uh, made in. Now, the cast has all the right shapes and contours, but there is something missing if you just have a cast, the mould. It's missing the really big thing, actually. It's missing the bottle, the thing it is designed to be filled by and to produce. So you look at the mould and you look at the bottle and you think, yes, they fit together. Clearly, they go hand in hand. So what I'm saying is what was said about Jesus hundreds of years before he was born, the details of his life, those two things actually fit together. Like a bottle fits the mould, so Jesus fits the Old Testament and fulfils it. Now, if you don't think like an engineer and don't care about moulds and bottles and how they're made, uh, the next one is for you, perhaps. Here we have the mould for a chocolate Easter bunny. Same idea. 
Jesus as the chocolate bunny that uh, the, the uh, mold points to, the Old Testament. I'm sure that's a terrible illustration, but there you go. Now, it's not only that uh, that is the convincing... I'm sorry, it's not that... Uh, that uh, the mold kind of gives us the convincing proof as a neat fulfillment of Scripture. I think it's more than that. The Old Testament shows us how good God's plans are, how good it is that He has chosen to reconcile us to Him and to bring peace to our lives. Do you see here in verse 44 in Luke, uh, Jesus tells us that everything written about Him in the Scriptures, it must be fulfilled. It must be fulfilled. It had to happen. The cross, the resurrection, it had to happen because that was all God's plan to bring salvation, to bring peace to us. But the big key, the missing piece for the disciples, verse 45, have a look. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. Now, the disciples, I'm sure, could understand words and sentences and stories but they didn't understand until now God's plan to bring peace, to bring salvation. They didn't understand it until Jesus opened their minds and showed them. It's right here. I'm right there in the pages of Scripture. Jesus must have walked them through the Old Testament saying, look, see, here's how I sort of fit in. Here's how God's plan points to me dying on the cross, being raised again. What does it take us to believe in the resurrection? I think it takes understanding Scripture, Understanding what it explains, like why Jesus died, why he rose again. The scriptures, they, they point, paint a word picture, and I think they give us a, a sort of a tapestry, a picture of God's plan, and explains this is what God has done for us. See, through Luke's gospel, the account of Jesus' life, we see that Jesus is the peacemaker. He is the one that will mediate and resolve that conflict relationship and give us peace. Jesus is the king, the good king. He treated God as the majestic, eternal being that He is. And then Jesus swaps for us. He takes our place, the place of creatures who have rejected our Creator. And so Jesus faces the penalty for it. He faces death, or uncreation in a sense. Jesus faces it. Jesus faces death and rejection by God. He's cut off by Him on the cross. He pays the penalty for us entirely. Isn't that extraordinary? And then, with the resurrection, the resurrection announces there is now peace with God. The cross has worked. And the job of reconciliation is done. And what's more, death is now defeated. Death is now defeated. That great curse that hangs over our whole lives and tries to tangle it up in our chaos, Jesus has conquered death. So this plan of God to bring us uh, to have peace with Him and to remove the fear of death because we, like Jesus, will have life beyond the grave as we trust Him. Now that is the best news ever, isn't it? Reconciliation with God, no fear of death. It's peace. Those truths are liberating once we grasp them. Being at peace with the One who controls everything, who is our Maker and our Judge, if we have peace with Him, we can get on with our lives, uh, not being fearful of how bad things may get. God's in control, and we have peace with Him. And if we're confident that Jesus really has beaten death in His resurrection, we don't have to worry about death either. That's the ultimate liberation, isn't it? 
If we're at peace with the notion of death, if we're at peace with our Creator and our Judge, that is real peace. That is real peace, no matter what happens in our life, no matter what chaos comes our way. But what's the catch? Uh, Verse 47. Well, we need to be forgiven. We need to be forgiven for how we have treated God. Jesus makes this entirely possible. He's paid the debt we owe. He's paid that on the cross. But still, like any relationship, we need to find forgiveness with God before we can find peace with Him. So to find that forgiveness, we need to repent. Repent and turn from how we've treated God, how we've treated Him, pushing Him to the margins of our life, and treating Him and His rule over our world with indifference or disdain. And instead, turning away from that, asking that God in His kindness, He might help us live His way. That's how we find peace with God, by repenting of life without Him. So my encouragement to us all, uh, because this is where Jesus points us. If we want to know God, if we want to have peace with God, and if we want to have great confidence that Jesus has completely paid for all our sin, we simply need to read. Uh, Read God's Word to us. He affirms these things for us. And pray. Pray that He would help us understand the Scriptures and see His plan for salvation. Now, if you like, we actually have uh, copies of Luke's Gospel on that little table with a red box there. Uh, If you'd like a copy to take home and read, you're most welcome. I have to say, I have a conviction. Um, I can't prove this, but my conviction is that something true, uh, something true should also be beautiful. I think truth is beautiful. That's my conviction. I can't prove it. And as I've, uh, I've found, I've, I've read and I've studied the Bible over years, and it's a complex and tricky book, uh, but it's wonderful. As I've studied the different bits and pieces and see all the strands sort of woven together throughout the Scriptures, as I've sort of seen the connection from one point to another, uh, just like anyone else who's worked hard at uh, understanding the Bible, after a while, you start seeing how those strands are woven together and you can see some kind of uh, the tapestry, God's plan, uh, as it's unveiled in the Bible. And the picture that it paints, the tapestry that's woven by Scripture, shows us an amazing grace to us in Jesus. And I think it's beautiful. Truth is beautiful. And as you step back, I think it's, it's overwhelming to see how God has acted in our world doesn't prove that Scripture is true, of course, but I think it's what you'd expect if it were true. Well, to finish, what do we do then with this great news, this wonderful news that Jesus is risen and that we can have peace and no more fear of death? Well, Luke finishes his account here with a brief retelling of Jesus returning to heaven. And he finishes with those words that the disciples were praising God, praising God. Now that the disciples know they can find Jesus in Scripture, they can understand who He is and what He's done, Jesus also promised to send His Holy Spirit, uh, God's presence with us. The disciples have everything they need. They have peace with God. They can get on with God's kingdom work. Uh, We too have everything we need. We have God's Word. We have His Holy Spirit. And we have a great mission to be on. And so I think our first response at Easter is always to have joy. Uh, to praise God, knowing His kindness to us. And knowing that we have nothing to fear, nothing uh, to worry about, because we have peace with our Creator. Uh, We will in a moment praise God in song, uh, but uh, praise is more than just singing a song, of course. We praise God with every part of our life. 
And my hope for all of us, and myself included, is that this Easter, our hope, our joy, uh, might be renewed. Uh, Understanding from the Scripture, with greater clarity, why Jesus died for me, and what His resurrection means. And to grasp more firmly what peace with God is like. And to just live with great confidence in God's grace. Be reminded that death is not something we have to fear. Uh, perhaps today, uh, there'll be some of us here who um, haven't yet found peace with God. Um, why not do that today? Jesus has risen. He offers us the forgiveness of sins. He offers us eternal life. I think today is the best day to repent of living with indifference to God. And today is the best day to find peace with Him. So in a moment, I'll lead us in prayer, and if you're ready to uh, repent and to turn away from treating God with indifference, uh, you might like to make my prayer your prayer and uh, pray with me, turning your life over to God and to His rule, knowing that Jesus has died for you and risen for you, and He gives you life. So would you all join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your majestic salvation plan, the way you've sent Jesus to bring peace between you and us. Dear God, please forgive me for my sin, for treating you so poorly. I turn from that way of life and please help me live your way, trusting Jesus as my saviour and serving him as my king. Father, please help all of us, every one of us here, have great joy. Uh, Renew our joy, renew our uh, confidence that the peace we have with you uh, leads us to praise you with our whole lives. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. The final thing for me to say is, if you did pray the prayer that uh, you'd like to uh, ask God for forgiveness, just come and see me after. I'd love to know about that and chat with you before you go. Thanks.